0: Tonight, we kick off the Gospel of Mark. Now, Mark was not one of the twelve disciples, so who was he? Well, he was known as John Mark, although the second gospel has always been labeled Kata Markon," meaning according to Mark. So, at one point he was just Mark, but initially John Mark was a believer in the early church mentioned directly only in the book of Acts. John Mark is first mentioned as the son of a woman named Mary, whose house was being used as a place for believers to gather and pray. Later, Mark is mentioned as a companion of Barnabas and Paul during their travels together. John Mark was also Barnabas's cousin. Mark was a helper on Paul and Barnabas's first missionary journey, recorded in Acts 13. However, he deserted Paul and Barnabas in a town called Pamphylia. This came right after they had a fruitless visit to Cyprus and where they saw lots of demonic possessions. So it's actually likely that Mark just got discouraged and decided to head home. Eventually, Paul and Barnabas returned from their first missionary journey. And when they talked about a second journey, Barnabas wanted to take Mark with him. But Paul disagreed and did not want to take Mark because it might have been seen as someone who's undependable. So they split and they took two crews. Paul went out and so did Barnabas with Mark. But years later, Mark is with Paul and Paul calls him a fellow worker, so Mark Mark really here must have matured through the years and had become a faithful servant of the Lord. John Mark wrote the Gospel between 50 and 60 AD. And as we read through this, you will see that this Gospel is a Gospel of action. See Jesus' deeds are emphasized as well as there's an emphasis on discipleship and faith. So there you go. A little bit about mark and that's enough today for our historical minute
1: let us pray God, we thank you for just, I guess, being able to live in Arizona during this time of year. We thank you for the beautiful weather. We thank you for the opportunity to come tonight and just dig into your word anew as we begin this gospel of Mark, Lord. May your word of truth and may your words of love through Jesus Christ continue to resonate with us as we deal with life, as we deal with its ups and downs, as we deal with things not going our way. Maybe we be reminded that Jesus is always with us and that he is our strength. And so we pray that tonight in Jesus' name and all God's people said. So, uh, we're starting Mark today, and we're going to go a little bit slower in Mark than we have been in Genesis recently. Uh, in fact, we're slow way down tonight. And we're going to begin in chapter 1, verse 1, and I'm just going to begin, and then I'm going to talk about it for a little while. But it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Another way of reading that same thing is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so Mark begins in a little bit different way Then Matthew and Luke does. Matthew begins with the genealogy. Uh, Luke talks about a whole bunch of things before telling us what Jesus' purpose was. Uh, All good stuff, all powerful things, but Mark just kind of cuts to the chase. He's writing to a group of people, uh, most likely in Rome, Christians that were suffering for their faith that would be thrown to the lion's den, that were being accused of lighting the fire in Rome that apparently Nero set, that were being lit as uh, street lamps during some of Nero's parties, that were being persecuted, rounded up, and imprisoned. It was a very tough life. And so for Mark, writing this gospel to them uh, via Peter, he was kind of the right-hand person of Peter later on um, after his time with Paul, um, he conveys these words that they needed to hear. That Jesus is for them, that he's with them, and that there's amazing news because of his resurrection. And so he begins as saying, This is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, why does he say it that way? Well, we're just in Genesis, and so we learned a variety of things. We learned that our sin has separated us from God, right? Remember, way back in the fall, chapter three of Genesis, our sin separated us from God. And That relationship that we had with him, where God would walk with us in the cool of the day, remember Adam, and and God would just kind of hang out with him and talk to him, and and, and there was an amazing relationship, an amazing kinship that was destroyed, and they were kicked out of the garden. And to be fair, man has never really recouped that relationship with God. In his mercy, he always preserved an elect, people that were looking forward to the promised seed. And we saw that promise given to Adam and Eve right after they were kicked out. We see that promised seed as part of the spiritual blessing that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob all clung to with everything that they had. It's what Joseph looked forward to, even upon his death, return my bones to Israel, uh, to, back to the promised land. They were looking forward to this one that would right all things, this one that would save them. This one that would restore that relationship with God. And so when Jesus came, in every way, it is the beginning of the good news, that promised seed, that Savior that was born, the one that would write all things. And he restores that relationship. And so there's a couple things I want to point out in that. Number one, everybody that's in the world is not God's children. Do we understand that? It's God's creation. He created everybody in the world. But what makes us God's kids? Faith in Jesus Christ. Those are the ones that, according to Galatians, he adopts into his family. Those are the ones that he opens up the storehouses of heaven. Those are the ones that are forgiven and redeemed in Jesus Christ. And so he ministered and he died for the whole world, for all of his creation. But it's only those that receive him that regain that intimate fellowship with Christ. It's only to those who believe in him that relationship has been reconciled. And so this in every way is the beginning of the good news of that reconciliation. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, and so he kind of shares this has been prophesied for many, many years, and it's not only in Isaiah. Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, also uh, quotes this from Isaiah, but he says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. And so he was talking about John the Baptist, and he'll shortly go into a little discourse about him. But this was the prophecy about John the Baptist, that he was the forerunner of Christ, that he was to point people to them, that he was to prepare their hearts so that they were ready to hear the message of Jesus. And I was thinking about that today, and I was thinking that probably made for a very different world, a very different audience than we have today. You see, they were already... um, For 400 years, I guess, but they were already recently uh, brought back to the promised land. I say 400 years is a long time. That's how long we've been in this country, but the remembrance of the exile and why they went was still in the forefront of their mind, and he created a a rather puritanistic, puritanical, puritanal, whatever that word is, puritanistic uh, system um, for the people in Israel. They were very moved and very motivated to follow all of God's law for fear that they'd be exiled again. For fear that they'd be punished again. Roman still had rule over Israel, and they viewed that as a punishment of their continual sin before him. Like, it's, you're good, but you're not quite good enough, you know, and so I, I'm not gonna remove these guys until you get it right. And so there was this pressure to follow God. There was this understanding that there was consequence to sin, and that was part of God's judgment upon them. They understood all that. They got all that. They saw that as a part of their life. And there was a fear that if they didn't get it, they'd be separated from God forever because it was just, again, a remnant that returned. The rest were destroyed or exiled forever, right? So it was just a remnant that were saved, and they, they didn't want to lose that. Today's culture, I think there's an awareness of the consequence to sin. I mean, we see the consequences of difficult life and, and hardship all as a result of sin. The problem today is I don't think we get that it's a result of sin, we live in a culture where we're told that there's really nothing wrong. It's lifestyle choice, it's uh, the way you wanna live your life, it's good for you, and, and this is good for me, and as long as you don't tell me what's good for me, where I'm good with you, you know, it's just kind of this live and let live philosophy. There's this kind of uh, postmodern society where truth is relative, and so my truth is not any better than your truth, and your truth isn't any better than my truth, and, and so we've lost the truth somewhere along the way, it seems. And what used to be understood as sin in our country because we grew up kind of on Christian principles and it was kind of a part of the fabric of our country and the way we looked at things. It's been lost along the way and now it's all up for grabs. And if you go to even a, a church bodies, right, then they tell you that sin is no longer sin and yet you experience the consequences of that sin. You just see that life is hard. and Maybe that God is mean but you don't see it as a direct result of the sin that you're doing in your life. And so we're not learning from it. And if we don't see anything as sin, then we don't really think that we need forgiveness, and if we don't need a forgiver, we don't really need a savior, because what is he saving us from? I guess the difficulty of life. And so now you know why there's fewer people in church today because they don't get why they need Jesus. We need Jesus not because he makes life easier, does, but we need Jesus because he forgives our sins, because he restores that relationship with God, because he gives us heaven. And yet we lost sight of that along the way, and when John went out, he prepared the hearers. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It'd be like the world's coming to an end, judgment days are coming, it's time to get right with God, right? That's what he's saying. And he was doing this baptism of repentance, which means, hey look, I know life is hard, and I know you're beat down because of your sins, and I want you to come and get right with God and receive his forgiveness today. And so people would travel in mass from Jerusalem and all over Judea, over 20 miles. It was 20 miles from Jerusalem to Jordan where he, where he was doing his baptisms. And they would walk that distance, which is at least like four hours, right? And so it wasn't just a quick trip there and back, it was a long trip there and you'd probably stay all day and it was a long trip back that night if you came back and it was was something that 300,000 they estimate did and received a baptism from John. And I was thinking about that number today and that by itself makes him one of the most successful preachers like in history, outside like Billy Graham or something like that. 300,000 people were baptized. 300,000 people received forgiveness from Christ. That's an extraordinary number from this guy that was a little bit off in the middle of the desert and talking about God. And so Mark begins to talk about John the Baptist. And he says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You'll see here, but all the way through Matthew 2 and Luke and John, This connection of repentance and faith and forgiveness. They're all tied together. I I think, you know, sometimes we just sit with Paul's words and say, we are saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. Yeah, hey, and it's true. We are. It's not because of us. It's because of Jesus that we're given all this stuff. It is purely by grace. It is claimed through faith. But Jesus, Peter, John the Baptist, the disciples, as they wrote, they said, repent and believe. Believe. Again, that repentance part is an important part of our faith walk. Uh, Think about what Jesus gives. He gives forgiveness. Um, If somebody wanted you to say, I forgive you, but didn't want to repent, how likely would it be that you just say, I forgive you? I'm not really sorry, but come on. You know, say the words, say you forgive me, you know, but I'm not really sorry. I don't really want to change. I'm not even going to do anything different. My, my buddy recently was divorced, and I, I, I grieve that for him because it's been one of the hardest things he's ever gone through. His wife just kind of up and quit one time. A, a period during the relationship or during this, this fractured time, she says, hey, I'll come back, but nothing's going to be different except that, you know, I still want the open relationship. And that was pretty much a non-starter for him, right? Because that doesn't really work in a marriage. And he just looked at that and he said, she's not sorry. She's not going to change. What's going to be different? And it was hard for him to say the words, I forgive you. In fact, he couldn't. If, If you understand that, then you get why repentance is part of this relationship with God. All the way through scripture, the Old Testament and the New, a humble and contrite heart God will never despise. And so he calls on us to say sorry. And repentance means not just saying, I'm sorry, I got caught, or I'm sorry for the sin, but it's, it's also this, this intentionality to say, pretend this is a sin, I'm gonna turn my back on the sin, and I'm gonna try to walk away from it. In other words, true repentance means you're gonna try not to sin anymore in that area. And we all have these little pet sins that we kind of excuse and rationalize and justify, God says then that's not repentance. It's like the story of a, 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 a prostitute who went to a priest one time, and she was grieved because of her lifestyle and, and what she'd become. So she went in, and she, asked, she said, Father, will you forgive me? And he says, you're forgiven in Jesus' name. Five years, every single day, she came into the priest and asked the very same thing, Father, will you forgive me? And for five straight years, he says, you're forgiven in Jesus' name. I guess five years in one day or however the story goes, she came in and she asked the same question again. And he says, you're not forgiven. She said, why? You haven't left your life of sin. You're not really sorry. Nothing's changing. The intentionality's there, but there's no heart between it. That there's no desire to turn from your sin. God demands that repentance from us. That humble heart that says, God, I need you. My life is messed up. I I need something better. I need you to lead my life. I need you to forgive me. I need a fresh start. I need a new beginning. I need to know that you still love me. I desperately need you, Father. And so I trust in Jesus Christ, who promises that I'm forgiven. And I trust in Jesus Christ, who says that because of His resurrection, He has reconciled that broken relationship. Now, when we're good, not because I deserve it, but because of what He's done, and I trust that because of that, you're going to let me go into heaven. This is a baptism of repentance. You know, baptism, um, as you in the church at large, it seems like it's a big discussion you know, can we baptize infants, you know, is God really present in baptism, and all those questions seems to swirl. But all the way through scripture, and in the early church, baptism was viewed as a gift from God. In the Old Testament, right, they had sacraments that were just a little bit different. They had circumcision and and the sacrificial system, right? Both promised to make you part of God's family, both promised forgiveness, both promised if you held to God, right, that you you get to enter into whatever the afterlife was at that time, and it was still nebulous at that time for many. In the New Testament, Jesus gives us baptism, which is very similar to circumcision. God promises that it gives us entrance into God's family. Peter says, and baptism now saves. It's a way of forgiveness of sin that was even true in, in John's baptism, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of your sins. It's a promise that you receive the Holy Spirit, and, and with power. And the Holy Spirit is is one that they describe as a comforter, as a spirit of truth, as a guide, as one that helps you cling to Jesus when life gets hard, that helps you cling to his promises. It's an amazing gift. And, and because it's a gift of God and not some proclamation that we make, it's something that we can give anybody. Can you give your one-year-old a, a one-year-old birthday party and give her gifts and, or, and have a big cake that they get stuff all over their face with, right? And and the only way she's not gonna receive those gifts or receive the cake is to refuse to eat it. But it's given to her and it's hers for as long as she wants it. Now can you give those gifts away? Can you reject baptism? You bet you can, not but, but as long as you receive it, you've received one of the most powerful things that God can give you to remind you of his love and forgiveness. And so John starts doing this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and it was having this salutary effect on all these people because they felt a reconnection with God. They felt forgiven by God. They felt like they had this chance to start over with God and they were excited about it. They were looking forward to the one that was to come because what else did John the Baptist say? There's one coming after me the Savior of the world, and he's going to write all things, and the winnowing fork is in his hand. That was a little bit more scary, right? And he's going to send you the Spirit, and I, although I baptize, you know, with, with water, he's going to baptize with fire. In other words, when he comes, he's going to give you all those things I just talked about, or for those that don't believe, the unrepentant He's going to give you judgment in hell. But the winnowing fork is in his hand, he says. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him when being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey, the same way that Elijah did way back in the day. He was very different. He was out in the wilderness. He was uh, very charismatic, apparently. but, But the reality is he was preaching the message that nobody else was preaching. And he preached, saying... After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now this was also at a time where there was a lot of people looking forward toward the Messiah. Rome was still oppressing them. Right? They, 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 they continually were crying out to the Lord to send them aside or write all things. I think the year 2000 when there, there's a lot of chatter about the world ending and stuff like that. But it wasn't so much the world ending, but there was a sense that something was, was coming. And, and then you add to that like 20 years earlier, right? There was all that commotion in Jerusalem about the king being born. Savior of the world being born. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And so this was, there was this anticipation. There was a looking forward to it. And so when he started saying that, people got even more geeked, right? They're saying, the king's coming, right? He's going to be here. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee to fulfill scripture, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Lots of people wonder why he was baptized by John in the Jordan, and there's a lot of theories on it. But it just seems to be uh, Jesus came to assimilate or to, um, even though he was without sin, to identify with sinners. And so he went through baptism to fulfill all righteousness, to say, this is what you do when you're a sinner. You come and you receive baptism for the forgiveness of your sins. He didn't need it, but he did it to model it so that nobody would despise baptism afterwards. And when he came out out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn apart, or torn open, and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven and said, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. He also used baptism as a way for God to identify him to John the Baptist, to all who were there that day that he was the Messiah, the prophesied one, the coming one. And as soon as John saw the dove come down, bam, that was the sign, that was what he was looking for, that's how he knew it was Jesus. And you think about Elijah when he was uh, in in the cave on that mountain, right, and he was trying to listen from God, and he came out and there was a fire, and then he came out and there was a storm, and he came out, there was an earthquake, and then He came out with a still small voice, right? That wind that was coming through and he he heard God in the still small voice and you get that sense with the dove just kind of coming down and then God pipes up out of nowhere and it wasn't just John the Baptist that heard this. It was some of the disciples and others and he says, you're my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. I like that. I I don't think we give enough affirmation today, encouragement today to our kids, to to our friends, to, to just about anybody, I don't think, but God, just to make sure that people knew that this was his kid, he says, you're my beloved son. In other words, I'm claiming him. Um, it's easy, it was easy for me growing up to claim my dad. You know, he's a superintendent of schools. You know, I really looked up to him. He was cool, you know. I mean, not so much in my crowd, but he was cool, right? And, and, and so I respected him and stuff like that. But, you know, I was terrified that I would do something like, you know, I could just imagine getting a, a ticket in like a school zone and my face plastered in the front page saying, superintendent's kid doesn't obey the laws or whatever. So I was kind of a little freaks growing up because I didn't want to bring any dishonor on my dad. I didn't want him to put him in any place where he didn't want to claim me as his kid. But that was a deal. And I remember one time I was struggling in, in college. It was my first semester. College apparently was a little tougher than I thought or whatever. And um, I struggled that first semester, I remember. And my dad came in and I was kind of bummed out over my stuff and, and second guessing stuff because I thought I was smart, you know. And, and I was going through all that. And um, my dad kind of pulled out one of his old report cards and showed me that, you know, I didn't have that much to feel bad about because the reality is, you know, he was superintendent now and look what he had, you know. So, so the reality is. At that moment, though, it was one of the cool moments of my life where, you know, when every time I needed my dad, he's just been there. And, and I was at a low time, a time of self-doubt, a time just wondering, and he came in and said, man, it's okay. You're still my kid. I'm still proud of you. You're still going to do great things. And that's what God does here. He says, you're my beloved son. I claim you. You're mine. I love you. And, and that's a big deal. And it's something that God says of us, too, because of Jesus. Charlie, you're my son, and I love you. Walt, you're my son, and I love you. And he goes over to each and every one of us, and he says, you're my child. There's nothing I won't do for you. And then he says this, with you I am well pleased. I want you to think about your parents saying that about you. I'm so proud of you. Or your sister or your brother saying that about you. Or your best friend, or whoever it might be. I'm so proud of you and what you've become. I don't think we hear that a whole lot even if they are proud of us I think they don't really share it because you know they don't want us to get a big head or whatever it might be or they are jealous or they I don't know we just don't share it enough but man it feels good to hear those things doesn't it I want to encourage you guys to share that with people in your life that you know need to hear it it makes a difference we're motivated way more by praise than we are by getting beat down all the time and so if it's with your kids, try to praise them more and, and encourage them into greatness as opposed to beat them into greatness, you know? If it's with your friends or your family, try to encourage them into something that's better. But God says this of Jesus, and He says it with us because of Jesus. You are my beloved child, and with you I am well pleased. And everybody heard it and he testified that this was his son. And then, okay, and so as we're going through here, there, it, Mark starts this way too because he gives three witnesses. Remember Matthew gave like five witnesses, but Mark starts by giving us three witnesses that share that Jesus is the Messiah, that is the one to come. And he starts with John the Baptist who said what? This is Jesus. He's the one to come. He even names him, right? And then, now, and then the, the God's his voice comes down and the spirit of God come down. Kind of a, a triune thing at that moment, right? Because there's Jesus on the banks of the, of the Jordan and they got the Holy Spirit coming down and God's voice coming down. It's just a cool moment. And so God himself testifies, this is my son. This is the one I was talking about. This is the seed that we've been praying about all those years. He's coming, he's here. And then Satan kind of unwittingly testifies that this is the Messiah as well, that this is the Christ. So the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. I always kind of picture uh, being dropped off in the middle of the Arizona desert or something like that. And um, there's just some times in my life where I've been out there, you know, uh, for uh, for different reasons. And it's just quiet at night, you know, and in the daytime. If you get out far enough, there's I don't know if the lizards just know to be quiet or what the deal is, but you just don't hear much and And I remember one time that just the silence was just deafening. And at first I thought it was cool because how often, you know, are we silent in our world, especially, you know, a talker like myself, you know, how often do we just experience that silence? And at first I thought it was cool, but then it started to creep me out just a little bit because it just kept going. Nothing was breaking that silence. And so Jesus, he's out in the middle of this this wilderness for 40 days, and that silence is all around him. And kind of make you crazy a little bit, but for Jesus, it just seemed to connect him with God. And then the other gospel said that he fasted during that time. I was doing some some study on on that kind of fasting. And at first, fasting's awesome, it clears your mind, it it kind of gets rid of all that sleepiness and and just makes you totally in tune with stuff, but as you continue the fast, it kind of makes you a little bit delusional, and you start having dreams about these banquet feasts, it's just like about a big steak, about, you know, you start having those things, and if you persevere through that, all of a sudden you go through this depression. You kind of get clear-headed, but you get really depressed, And then if you get through that, and uh, most of these studies were from the World War II people that went through um, some just kind of brutal captivity, but you're really open to suggestion at that point, and that's where you're open to brainwashing and all sorts of different things. And so at day 40, as being 100% human, Jesus is feeling some of these effects, but he's 100% God too, so I don't know how that all works, but the reality is this is when Satan tempts him at a time of high suggestibility, at a time of great weakness, at a time where he's been alone for 40 days. There's nobody supporting him during this time. The angels haven't appeared. There's nothing. Just the wild animals, (laughs) which if you're in the desert and you hear a, woo, does that make you calming? Is that good for you? It's terrifying, right? You're thinking a coyote or or a wolf or whatever. You're like, that doesn't sound good. They sound too close. Um, So all he had was the wild animals, which would have resonated with these people in Rome as they were being thrown to lions and different other creatures to be torn to pieces. And as that, just kind of as a connection with that, if Jesus himself went through this, he'll be there with me as I go through that kind of trial. So he's there and Satan tempts him. And if you remember, he was tempted with physical pleasure, right? I'm tempting you to turn these rocks into to bread and so satisfy yourself. Who's going to know? <laughs> the animals. They're not going to tell anybody. Just do it. Just me and you will know. But go ahead and use your power. And then he tempted them with personal success. Man, I'll give you, uh, you just throw yourself from the temple, right? And angels will catch you and everybody will see it. And man, you can say whatever you want and they'll follow you. I mean, that's all you gotta do. Just show that sign, and everybody will lose their doubts and follow you. And then they tempted him with political success. Satan said, not just Israel, but I'll give you the whole world if you just kneel down and worship me. And again, who's gonna see? And isn't that what Satan does when we're tempted? Nobody's gonna find out. Nobody's gonna see. It's okay. I mean, if you're gonna do it, you do it now in the middle of the desert when nobody's watching. And then when we get into trouble, we're alone in our rooms, or we're alone in our thoughts, or we're alone on a business trip, or whatever the case might be. Nobody was going to find out. But Jesus, in that state, he combats God, or Satan, with, his word, with God's word. And each time Satan threw out one of those temptations that legitimately did test his human side, he combated it in that state with his word. And the word triumphed, and the word made Satan leave. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What's interesting about Mark is his timeline's a little bit jumbled up. But if you understand that half the book of Mark is the passion, he kind of skips ahead over Jesus' early ministry. And then he'll kind of float back and forth as he picks up the disciples and different things. But he, he skips over the whole in, early ministry and he goes to the time when John the Baptist was arrested okay, and, and put into trial, which was... At the very shorthand, six months, it could have been up to a year later, but he just skips over that early part. And then this is what Jesus says during this time. He says this, and this was the crux of his message all the way through. The time is fulfilled. In other words, I'm here and the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, it's time. It's time to follow. It's time to believe. It's time to receive. And he says, repent and believe in the gospel. Again, that repentance. Repent and believe. Believe that he has given you the forgiveness that you're sorry for. Repent. And I can't say that enough because we live in a culture where we don't repent really. Because we don't really think anything's wrong or we don't think God's that serious about stuff. And we just kind of blow off or rationalize or excuse all our sins as if they're not real. And so we come to church when we're going to do confession time and we're like, I hope pastors start saying something quick because I don't know what to pray about. Or we think of that one thing that maybe we did when there's a lot of thousand things that we really did. We forget to repent because we're stopping, or at least our culture stops seeing sin as sin. And then we stop thinking we need a savior. And then we stop seeing our need for Jesus. And then we have to give him a new need, right? Because we go to church and we say, well, he's about answering our prayers and he's about making me happy and he's about making life easier. No, he's about saving you from hell. He's about reconciling that relationship with God. Repent and believe in the good news, he says. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, they were, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And I love this, immediately their nets, they, they left their nets and they followed him. And going a little further, he saw James and the, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and they followed him. Every time Jesus called somebody to follow him in the Bible, immediately left everything and went. Coolest thing ever. Now, just for a little perspective, uh, most commentators believe that these four were part of John the Baptist's crew, that they were there or at least heard about Jesus' coming and John naming him as the Messiah, uh, believe that he saw the dove descending, that they heard God's voice or whatever, that John the Baptist had encouraged most of his disciples saying, this is the guy now, you need to follow him. I mean, this, you should go. And so when Jesus finally called them to follow, and they had probably gone in and out of the ministry at that point, but when he called them to follow, they just left everything. Because we know from the other Gospels that they believed that he was the Messiah. And if you were looking forward to the Christ, and you saw that he was coming, and you realized what he could give you, nothing else was worth it. And so they followed him. And they left family in some cases. They left friends in cases. They left business. Not that they I mean, still had them, right? But they, they followed Jesus all over all over the, uh, Israel. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. It, it's interesting, back in the day, I guess, back during this time, they would just kind of invite different people to come and talk in their, their synagogues and do the teaching, which I think that's interesting. I don't know that I would practice that today, but they would do that. And so Jesus had this opportunity to come in and, and just read through the scriptures and teach. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Now the scribes kind of do what I do. They say, well, this commentary said this, or, or they would say this church, or this uh, rabbi said this, or this guy said this, and this is the interpretation that these guys were saying, right? And, and, and Jesus would just say, this is the way it is. And he would just tell them what Scripture meant. And he wasn't going to anybody else for authority. He was just speaking as if God was speaking to them. And immediately there was in the synagogue, where am I? And they were astonished at his teaching, for they thought, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man who had an unclean spirit. In other words, there was a guy who was demon possessed in church. And he cried out. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And one of the reasons, they, could, again, and I'm saying the commentators, they believed that the, the spirits were doing this is they were trying to out Jesus early. There was a lot of political significance to the Messiah. There was a lot of misinterpretation about who he was. They just viewed him as a king. that would kind of get rid of Rome and all those kind of things. That was the popular theology of the day. And so they're trying to out him because as soon as they outed him, it would limit his ability to actually preach the gospel, tell people about the forgiveness of sins. It would limit his ability to move forward. So Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And then the craziest thing happened the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, Who is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. And so this was a time, it's after... John the Baptist was in prison. It was a time when Jerusalem where he was being limited from um, speaking. It, it was, he had already been uh, in a place where they were looking for accusations to try to string him up on something. They, they, they were beginning to be suspicious of him. They didn't like what he was doing. They didn't like the number of people that were following him. They started to be worried about Rome and what they would do if he caused too much commotion. So he was in Galilee, and they were a lot less stringent, I guess, and, and he was able to do more things. Um, but they started going around, and this is one preaching spot to another preaching spot to another preaching spot, showing his power, sharing his, his gospel, sharing with people that he was the Messiah. And people were believing left and right, and they were coming to him. In the section here, though, I think it's just important to acknowledge today, I, I just share it because I don't think you hear it anywhere else, I guess, but there is a reality of, of, of demon possession today. In fact, did you know in the Catholic Church right now, they can't they can't train enough um, exorcists today because they've seen just a huge increase in the demonic possession throughout the world. And, and they're in such short demand, even though they do conference after conference after conference, trying to train these guys up to go out. Um, Even in ministry, um, in the Lutheran church, we're we're seeing more and more people that are are struggling badly. And whether it's demonic possession or other things, it's hard to say, but it's just out there. And, and, And it makes sense, I guess, as our culture turns more and more away from God, who fills the void. And if you don't have God resisting Satan and God there's nothing to defend these people and so it makes sense that more and more that's happening Um, there's all sorts of entry ways into the occult and so I just say don't go through those you know if you're interested in those you can talk about them later but but it's just a reality that exists today just like it existed back in the day and yet here's the thing because Jesus rose he gave us victory not just over sin and death but over the devil as well And so even though this reality exists, it's not something a Christian needs to be afraid of. It's something that God has given you victory over because in Jesus' name, Satan has to listen to you when you say, be gone. In the name of Jesus, be gone, you say, has to listen. He doesn't have to listen to you say, be gone, but he has to listen in Jesus' name. And it's something I've seen evidenced over and over and over throughout my ministry. It's something, if you have bad dreams, works on that too. But the reality is, it's something that Satan has to abide by just like he had to abide when the disciple says it, just like he had to abide when Jesus said it, because there's power in the name of Jesus. And so when you start reading through these things, sometimes you think, well, we don't have that anymore, but we do. And it's part of an increasing part of American culture, but it's a huge part of some parts of South America um, and Asia right now, and it's a very real thing that the Catholic Church and Mass is dealing with. There's a lot of things the Catholic Church does that are a little bit weird, like the Pope recently saying that there's no hell. Um, not, it doesn't coincide with Scripture. The Catholic Church has actually walked that back quite a bit, which is interesting. But but the demonic possession thing is something they've always been very grounded on and good at, and it's, it, they're dealing uh, responsibly to some of the need that they're seeing. So I'm going to stop right there today, um, and, and I'll just recap a little bit. Um, so Jesus starts his ministry. John the Baptist kicks it off. God tells everybody, this is my son. He goes into the wilderness. He's tested by by Satan, and he comes out victorious, and then he starts going into the Galilee, this region of Galilee, and he shares with them his power, and he does all sorts of healings, and he casts out demons, and he shares with them over and over, repent and believe that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's my encouragement to you tonight. Repent and believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's one that can free you from your sin, that can give you strength for your today, and give you the hope of heaven. Go with that blessing today, and let's pray. God, we love you so much, and we, uh, we just pray tonight that you would help us receive those things I just talked about, that we would receive Jesus anew. And I know we just celebrated Easter, but I, sometimes I think we just put that on the back of our minds, but because he rose, we receive these things. Our sin is real, but the reality is he comes into that real sin, and he says, you're forgiven, and we don't go to heaven because we're good. We go to heaven because we're forgiven. And so as serious as that sin is, Jesus wipes it away, and he makes us new. In that renewed place, in that forgiven state, in that place that we've been given heaven, let us not go back to the life of sin. And so we pray that in Jesus' name tonight, and all God's people said, amen.